left ourselves with these two really cryptic verses at the end of Mark chapter 9. And uh, I don't know that I've got great statements to make about these, but remember that the section we're dealing with, starting in 38 really, kind of is a chain of thoughts. You know, he had the idea of not hindering someone who, who does something in Jesus' name, performs a miracle in Jesus' name. And then he goes from there to 41, just giving a cup of water to drink because you're a follower of Christ. That's, that action is blessed. Then he goes to the opposite, causing a believer to stumble. Then he goes to causing yourself to stumble by having your hand or your foot or whatever cause you to stumble. It would be better to cut it off than to, to go into unquenchable fire. And that, that leads him to doing a takeoff on the fire idea in verse 49. And uh, he says, for everyone will be salted with fire. And that leads us to verse 50. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. (laughs) So we've sort of just go, to me, kind of stringing thoughts along, kind of almost with a catchword idea. Still, it's rather difficult for me to be sure about what 49 and 50 are saying. When he says in 49, for everyone will be salted with fire. Let me give you the thing that seems most likely to me, even though I'm not totally satisfied with this. But fire can do good things or bad things. It can, in the context, obviously be a fire of judgment and punishment. And some people will be salted with fire in terms of eternal torment. But, but fire can also um, be the instrument of making a sacrifice to God, an instrument of purification. And so it seems to me like either you're salted with fire here and you have the fire of God's sacrifice and purification burn away your sins and purify you and make you pure gold, or you'll be salted with fire in eternal judgment. Everyone will be salted with fire. Either you go through the fire here, and it strengthens and purifies you and gives you to God, or you go through the fire in judgment. That's the best I can do with verse 49. Does anyone care to offer an uh, alternative explanation and make a comment about that one? I have a question. Uh, why the New, or New King James Version? I'm not sure about the English standard. Let me know about this, uh, David. Um, but it adds in after this, for everyone will be seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Why they throw that extra bit in? There is a textual question about that. Okay. Did you have that? That's a footnote. Some of the scripts I well, that, you, so it's just a textual... You've got New King James? Yes. Yeah. yeah, it's a textual question. New King James tends to go more with the majority text. Our translations tend to go more with Literal. the United Bible Society text, which is based more on the older manuscripts, not so much on the majority text. That's a whole other subject. Okay. And then 50, salt is good. You've been talking about being salted with fire. Well, salt is good. I think he's sort of doing a takeoff on the salt idea. And salt representing maybe the um, true quality of being a Christian, kind of like he does in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, or the salt of the earth. And there he says, if the salt loses its saltiness, then what's going to salt salt? <laughs> you know, you need to... You know, you you know, if, if salt loses its quality of saltiness, then then it's really useless. What would you do with salt if it didn't make something salty? If it didn't give flavor, what would you do with a Christian if he lost his distinctive Christianity? I, I remember years ago reading an article, I think by Robert Turner, which he talked about in the olden days when they used to kill butcher hogs and they'd cure the ham out in the barn. They'd put a bunch of salt around it and hang it for, I don't know, six weeks or something like that. And uh, he said, now imagine, you know, they got all this salt packed around it and one thing or another. 
and they let it cure for the amount of time that they're supposed to, and then they, you know, cook it or whatever they do, and they cut a slice of it and they, they bite into it. It doesn't have any flavor. It doesn't have any taste. Now, after it's been, you know, cured like that, it ought to be, you know, good and tasty. So I think that's really strange. They go out and, and they actually get some of the salt that, that, you know, has been around that ham, and they taste that. It tastes like ham. Instead of the salt flavoring the ham, the ham flavored the salt. You know, and the title of the article is Hammy Salt. <laughs> well, that'd be really bizarre. That's not the way that's supposed to work. The salt's supposed to flavor the ham, not to have the salt. Well, we're the salt of the, of the earth. We're supposed to flavor the earth, not the earth flavor us. You know, so often instead of the Christians giving their influence to the world, the world influence of the Christian, you have worldly Christians. They, they lose their distinctive saltiness. That's not the way that ought to work. So we ought to be, okay, maintain our saltiness. Um, and so he says, as he concludes, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. <laughs> Which kind of strings together another thought, but that thought takes us back maybe to 38, or maybe even as far back as 33, where they were arguing about who ought to be at the greatest. And maybe he's tying that back up with by saying, and guys, get along. <laughs> I don't know. I wish I had a better explanation for those verses. Um, but at this point, I don't. So, do you? <laughs> all right. Anything you want to say about that? Good. That was all I knew to say about it. So, I think we can uh, do a little better on the next section, chapter 10. Verses 1 through 12. Getting up, he went from, from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. Some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a, a wife. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. In the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. So, here the Pharisees come to Jesus, and they question him. Now, this... Uh, you know, I don't know if there was some particular uh, lesson Jesus taught that led to this, and Mark's just recording the question-answer session afterwards and not the lesson, or if this is kind of random. You know, I've got this question, they come to Jesus with it. But uh, this is kind of a, a question to test Jesus. And what's their question? Was it lawful? Yeah. Well, that's an interesting way to look at that. It's an interesting question to ask. You know, it's sort of like somebody who's gotten a loan and then said, now, under what conditions can I get out of this and not have to repay it? You know, uh, how, can, how can we divorce our wives? You know, under what conditions would that, that be okay? Is it lawful to do that? Well, Jesus does what he often does. Good technique. What does he say? So he's pointing them to the word. What did the law say? Moses was the one to whom God gave the law. So, what did Moses command you? Now that's a great way to respond to a question. Because so often we're tempted to say, well, you know, I don't really feel like it. You know, I think you ought to, or whatever. Well, much better to say, well, what does the Bible say? You know, what does the law command? 
Because that's really the only important answer to the question. Doesn't really make any difference what somebody says about it. So he said, what did Moses command you? And what do they say? Moses permitted um, a writ, a uh, certificate of divorce. Do you know about that? Yeah, but that's not the answer to the question. No. It's not the answer to the question. It's not what Jesus was looking for. Um, but it was a. But it's what they respond with, right? And you know what we often do, even in something like this, is we take that snatch, and we don't really know much about that, and we misunderstand even what that law was talking about. Do you know what that law was talking about? Doesn't that have to do with like signed by a witness, like someone witnesses? Huh? Wasn't it if she was impure? Well, that's what they made the issue, but that's not really what the law they're referring to was focused on. Did anybody know what the law was focused on? Well, it was, it protected the woman in the end. Sort of. That, I mean, that was part of it so that she wouldn't necessarily get a bad rap. But that's still not the focus of the law. See, it's interesting. We do, you know, a lot of times, you know, we're not that far from what they did. They really, even in what they said, they didn't get the law. Now, Jesus doesn't bother to deal with that because that wasn't what he was referring to anyway. And we'll come back and look at what Jesus said. But look back at the law in Deuteronomy 24. Because so many people just, you know, glance at what the Pharisees said and don't ever bother to go back and actually see what the law is all about. Now, the New King James might be a little different here. On this point, the New American Standard is, is correct, I think. Uh, so, we'll see. I'm not sure about the New King James. The King James is wrong about Deuteronomy 24. Uh, but the New King James may have corrected. But so listen to Deuteronomy 24. you got to really follow this. This is a, it's kind of case law, where you set up a scenario, and then you give the law. So a lot of this is the scenario. Listen to the scenario, and then listen to the, the law about it. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some indecency in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. And she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, is not allowed to take her again to be his wife, since she has been defiled. For that's an abomination before the Lord. You shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you gives you as an inheritance. Now, do you see the point of the law? You can't bounce from husband to husband. Well, you can, but what can't you do? Can't go back. You can't bounce back. <laughs> You know, if a guy divorces a woman and she remarries and husband B divorces her or dies, she can't go back to husband A. That's the law. That's what they were basing this on. Now, really, the law itself didn't say yay or nay about the right or wrong of husband A divorcing the wife. That wasn't really the point of the law. It sort of assumes it. It's saying, if it, this, 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 and this, then. So, this is sort of a permission only in the sense that it's not, it's not condemned. Not in the sense that it really even is dealing with that. Now, what the Pharisees did, they come up with a whole big debate about what something indecent was and the conditions under which you could divorce him. But really, that's not about Deuteronomy 24 at all. It's not even the point. He found something he didn't like it or whatever. It doesn't really define what it was. That's really not the point. Whatever it was. And he divorces her, you know, and, and she marries somebody else, then she can under no circumstances ever go back to that original spouse. That's the law that they that they think is the answer to Jesus' question, what did Moses command you? <laughs> well, that's not what he commanded them. That's just the scenario that was set up for commanding them the wife can never go back to husband A. Does that make sense? It's kind of
of an aside, but we might as well understand what the law said while we're at it. Uh, and, you know, Jesus doesn't bother to correct their misunderstanding of the law, but because that wasn't really the point. When Jesus said, what did Moses command you? He was not talking about Deuteronomy 24. What was he talking about? Genesis. Yes. See, the first five books were all the books of Moses. He's going back to Genesis 2. Now he said, yeah, Moses wrote you that commandment because of the hardness of your heart. In other words, why did Moses have to write that command in Deuteronomy 24 in the first place? Evidently because they were divorcing. Exactly. If they hadn't been divorcing, that law would have been unnecessary. So, that was just a law because they were hard-hearted and divorcing their wives. But, that's not what Jesus is talking about. When he asked about Moses, he said, but from the beginning creation, and this is from Genesis 2, God made the male and female. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. That is the summary of God's law about marriage. There's what God commands. He commands the two to leave their, their, their parents, cleave to one another, and become one. And Jesus adds his commentary. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So... What about the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce a wife? What's Jesus' answer? No. It's not. Why not? God has joined them together. Exactly. He does not give us the right to separate. There would be some other reasons why it's wrong, too. Can you think of other reasons why it's wrong to divorce? Breaks a promise? Yes. Didn't you, well, those of you who married, didn't you make a promise that for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, until death do us part? You know, did that mean anything? You know, we actually made that vow before God, and in my case, quite a number of other people, you know? But, you know, was it just sort of something that when whatever happened, then, oh well. And Matthew 5 would give another reason, because if I just divorced Sandra, you know, I make her commit adultery, or at least I put her in a position where she's going to be tempted to remarry and commit adultery. So actually, I'm really unfair to her. I'm putting a stumbling block in front of her. So there's a lot of reasons why I, I couldn't divorce. But now, let me ask you this question. What if a person divorces, but they don't remarry? Is it okay to divorce if you don't remarry? It is the same question, but it's amazing how many people, when you add that, will say, oh yeah, it's okay. Now, it's clear from verses 11 and 12 that we'll look at in a minute, remarrying actually increases the sin. There's another sin that's committed by the remarrying. But the question, the original question was not about remarriage. The original question was about divorce. And the question about divorce is all Jesus is dealing with through verse 9. The answer to that question is, no, you can't. So, what about the case where one of the two betrays their mate with sexual infidelity? What about that? It's not dealt with here. So, if it's not dealt with here, does that mean you can't divorce your mate because they're unfaithful to you? <laughs> well, if you could divorce your mate because of unfaithfulness, why wouldn't it be dealt with it? Because not all issues are dealt with in every text that deals with the issue. <laughs> exactly right. That, that's the right answer to that question. You know, I mean, you do not mention every exception every time you state the rule. Exceptions are exceptions. You know, when you teach somebody how to fly an airplane, 
every lesson doesn't mention the exceptions you make for crash landing. You know, you're not going to get that every lesson. Normally, you don't make crash landings, and so nor you get the lessons for what you do normally. Yes, Matthew 19 does make an exception for the one who divorces for sexual immorality. But in this passage, he's not considering that we're just dealing with the basic law. The basic law is divorce is wrong. That's the basic law. Now, you know, that shocking teaching of Jesus leads the disciples to question him about it again. <laughs> you know, that, this, is, this is probably some things that were not what they were expecting to hear. And so Jesus amplifies in verse 11 and 12 to say if you divorce and marry another, you commit adultery. You know, the, the remarriage adds to the sin because God has joined the husband and wife together. And when the husband divorces his wife and marries another, God never released him from his binding obligation to his first mate. So when he marries another, he's married to one person and bound by God to a different one. That's adultery. That's true whether the woman does it or the man does the same difference. All right, comments or questions? He says in verse 3, what did Moses command you? Then he refers back to God's command. Is there... Moses wrote it. Yeah. Okay, so he's just saying because of that? I think so. I think when he said, what did Moses command you, he meant Genesis 2. Are there any other laws in in the law regarding marriage? I mean, there are some other case stuff, but... I don't think there's anything else really relevant to this. Obviously, there's some laws about who you can and can't marry, and there's some laws about priests and different things. But I don't think there's anything else really that relates to this. I think what Jesus meant was Genesis 2, and they answered with Deuteronomy 24. (laughs) You know, they prefer to... uh, you know, look at Deuteronomy 24 as giving permission than looking at God's principle in Genesis 2. So I think when he said Moses, he just meant Moses was the one who wrote that down in Genesis 2. And he responded in verse 5 and says, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. This commandment about the, the one they mentioned in Deuteronomy 24. Okay, so now our language would be that commandment. So he wrote that because of the way you're... Right, exactly. Okay. Yeah, this and that kind of depends on how you look at them. <laughs> Or it's kind of complicated. But yeah, I think he means to write in 24. Other comments or questions? This might be getting outside of where we want to go, but I guess I, I, I know I've read it around in 24 before, but I don't think I ever really thought it through before. And I know that the old law is not going to apply to a situation today, but there are so many people who have divorced their first mate and married another, and maybe they realize that, you know, they've done wrong. And some people I know believe that you can go back to your first mate then. Well, apparently that was found on in the old law. Where would that leave a person today? I think what you said is correct. The old law doesn't still apply to us. Um, and so I would say the answer is you can go back to the, in the new law. go back to yes. the first one. Yes. That's my understanding. Uh, that there are, would be a lot of laws like that in the Old Testament that you know would not be binding on us. Certainly laws in that context in Deuteronomy would not be binding on us. Um, you know, you have a passage like 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 and 11, that says, if you if you leave, either be remain unmarried or else be reconciled. But in that passage, we don't necessarily have the marriage of the one who left. So, uh, I don't know that there's anything specific in the New Testament that would say that, but I would say we would not assume Deuteronomy 24 applied. Anymore. Oh, no, I definitely don't. And so I would not see any barrier biblically to that. The more difficult question, that is more difficult, I'll have to admit, is the case of divorce for fornication. And if then... 
one who divorces for fornication were to remarry. You know, that guilty party is really no longer bound to the innocent party. You know, could they under any circumstance, if the first one died or whatever, go back to each other? There's some questions about that. I don't know all the answers to that. But in general, I would say there should be no barrier to reconciling as far as I can tell. There's some, there's some difficult issues in all of this. I, I think it's, you know, I think it's good to talk about the difficult issues when we need to, because they, they're relevant. I mean, they come up, and so, you know, we've got to think about them. I, I do think it is important to continue teaching clearly the basic principles, even if we don't have all the answers for all of the weird situations people get themselves into. I may not have all the answers on every weird situation, Although I've got to be careful that I'm not saying that just because I don't want to deal with a difficult situation and I don't want to apply clear principles to it. In many situations, it's very clear. There are a few weird things that come up. It's like, man, I'm not sure how to look at that. But the principles are clear and they need to be taught. And in most cases, there's not going to be an issue if we really follow these principles. Of course, people want to get around them so badly in our day and time because there's so much divorce and remarriage. And so there are loopholes of all kinds, you know, that people have come up with. And it gets complicated. If you start reading everything everybody says to try to justify this stuff, but you just go back to the scriptures, they're a whole lot easier than the, you know, various, you know, I don't know what you'd say, the contorted reasoning of trying to, you know, open the door for all kinds of exceptions and allowances and so forth. Other comments and questions? So Deuteronomy 24 is not applicable or binding. That's what but I Genesis saying. 2 is because Jesus reiterates Genesis 2 as a as a current binding teaching and Expectation. He sees that as a basic principle that continues. Yes, he does. Not quite as surprising because really it's before the law. But 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 bottom line, Jesus, you know, uses it here, so it's clearly binding. Yeah. I've heard some refer to it as a creation principle. I think probably is. Other comments and questions? So a person finding themselves in a marriage that is an adulterous marriage, is that the right term? It's fine with me. Um, their only way to become right with God again is to remove the adultery, which would be to... To separate. To dissolve the marriage. Yes. And and you know, I, I like First Corinthians 6. And that is such an issue that seems to be hard for people. You know, it seems to be the thing that hangs people up so badly. But I, I look a lot at 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. The, the point of what I'm going to say may not be evident at first, but I think you'll see it in a second. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. Now, when he says such were some of you, he uses the past tense were. That means they aren't still, they were. Well, why could he say they were? Well, because they quit it. And they were cleansed. Now you think about it. If drinking excessively is drunkenness before conversion, what is drinking excessively after conversion? It's still drunkenness. And so what would you tell a drunk he had to do? Separate himself from the bottle. If bowing down before an image is idolatry before conversion, what is bowing down to an image after conversion? And what would you tell a guy doing that he had to do? Separate from the idol. If, you know, having a relationship man with man is homosexuality before conversion, 
even if it's a homosexual marriage in a couple of states, what is a homosexual marriage after conversion? It's still homosexuality. And what would you tell the homosexual? You have to separate from that sinful relationship. You know, so why is adultery different? Why is it that being married and to a second spouse is adultery, you know, I'm assuming divorce and not, you know, widowhood or something. Why is that adultery before conversion, but suddenly after conversion, the same action of having a marriage relationship with a second spouse, suddenly it's not adultery, and you don't have to separate from that sin. You have to separate from homosexual marriages, you have to separate from polygamous marriages, you have to separate from the bottle, from the image, but adultery is the only sin that changes definition upon conversion, and you can continue in that sinful relationship after conversion. I think this passage puts them in parallel. Conversion doesn't change the definition of sin, and it never gives the right to continue in sin. Such were some of you, because they quit it. They separated from their sinful practice. Just like the people of Nehemiah's time, who stopped their uh, uh, inappropriate relationships with the foreign women. Yeah. The marriages. And even more Ezra 9 and 10. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. you got a whole list of them there. If it's a sinful marriage... If you're going to repent, you know, I mean, how could you do continue any other sinful thing? You know, you're in a, in a sinful, I don't know, gang uh, to rob banks. You're converted. Can you stay in that sinful gang and rob banks? You can't stay in any sinful partnership. You have to end it. If you're going to be converted. Sinful marriage, whatever. It may be a homosexual marriage, it may be a polygamous marriage, it may be an adulterous marriage, but if it's a sinful marriage, it can't continue. And, and you know, we say, well, baptism forgives sins, absolutely. Does it ever give me the right to continue in my sin? You know, for baptism to forgive sins, I have to repent first. Repentance means I quit the sin. Wherever does repentance and baptism allow me to continue in my sin? You know, those principles are not that difficult, but I'll tell you, you start listening to people and they can confuse this. <laughs> ah, man! You know, I heard a guy in Brazil the last time I was there who's splitting a church down there. This church, you know, it's a mess anyway, but, but you know, over some of these things. And, I, wow! I mean to tell you. He, he used John 4. You know, to say that... Jesus said it was okay for that woman at the well to have five husbands. <laughs> I said, it doesn't say that in my Bible. You know? He said, yeah, she was shacked up now. That wasn't okay, but the five husbands were fine. Well, I don't think that's at all the implication I get out of that. No, we don't know all the details of the five husbands and all that. Wasn't even under the law of Christ. But I sure don't get the impression Jesus was saying, well, that was a, you know honorable thing. She'd had all five husbands. It's amazing, though, what we find when we're looking for it. And the, the passages that can be hijacked and the reasoning that can be given, it's so much simpler when we stick with plain Bible passages. But some of these things remind us there are deceivers that will twist the scriptures to their own destruction. And man, I've read and heard things. You know, over the years, I've struggled with some of these things. I did not believe the truth when I was going on about this stuff. You know, I was not taught the truth about this. I had to come out of several beliefs. I believed it was fine to divorce as long as you didn't remarry. I believed that you could remarry as long as the other one had first, <laughs> regardless of the circumstances. And a whole lot of stuff that were wrong. And I can remember even as a young preacher, you know, another guy continuing to work on me for a year on one particular point, and I finally realized, every time I say anything, he just comes back at me with the Bible. He was a good friend. We weren't at all, you know, we weren't arguing. We were just trying to study it. But every time, he'd just say, but look at the passage. Look at the passage. Here's what it says. I finally thought, this is ridiculous. I just need to accept what the Bible says. You know? But, but I had to 
changed a lot of my understanding in this area. And then, since then, I mean, you read and you hear some of this stuff, and good grief. You know, if you just listen long enough and don't read the Bible very much, it'll convince you because they talk a lot and write a lot. So I think we really need to go back to biblical teaching and principles and keep following them. And it still says what it says. I don't care what anybody else says. We just want so badly for them to be righteous. And they want to be, and they're good people in every way. And it's just really hard. It's heart-wrenching. We, I probably told this a while sometime, I don't know, but like 20 years ago, I was in a church. This young couple with a little two-year-old started visiting. She'd been a Christian in kind of a ultra-conservative church, and he'd not been a Christian, wasn't a Christian, but was interested. We started studies in the home. Really sweet couple. Really, really liked them. He was a little skeptical, but he was good to study with, and he was getting close to obeying the gospel. We were actually talking seriously about that. And at one point in that discussion, he sort of interrupted me. And he said, now, i got a question for you. He said, I'm in a marriage that the Bible calls adultery. What do you say about it? <laughs> That's exactly how he said it. I'm like, uh, well, I said, I don't know anything about your marriage. I mean, I had no clue that this wasn't the first marriage for both of them. I said, I don't know anything about your marriage, but if the Bible calls it adultery, then I will too. <laughs> you know? And then I said, you know, I'll be glad to listen. Well, it was a heart-wrenching story. You know, it was like, he was, I don't know, young, married this girl. She got pregnant. She had an abortion. They were still in high school, I think. You know, the abortion bothered him so bad, he divorced her. Married like six months. You know, that was that. And then, you know, they were still young. I don't think they were more than 25, even one of them. I don't remember exactly, but they were still young. And so they'd been married for two or three, four years. I don't remember how long. Had this cute little boy and all that. I'm evidently happily married. That, that was horrible. You know, I hated telling him. You know what? I, he knew. <laughs> it was funny the way he asked. And now later, he sort of tried to justify it a little bit. But he knew what the Bible said about it. He knew it was wrong. But he didn't care that much. She did. She really struggled with it. But in the end, she chose her relationship over the Lord. And I hated it. I mean, man, it would have been great to have them as part of the group, you know, humanistically speaking. You know, they were young. They were dynamic. They were encouraging. You know, formed a friendship. You know, and you hated saying to them what you knew was so hard for them to But how can I change what the Bible says? If the Bible calls it adultery, and I don't, how can I change what God says? And so, I mean, those things were really hard. I hate them. But on the other hand, I believe God knows what's best. I believe God's will is best. And, and I've really come to believe that we don't know the whole picture. But if we did, we'd see it was best to you know, there's a You know, if, if I knew the whole picture, I believe I'd have said to that couple, oh, by all means... Do what the Lord says. This will be much better. As it is, I just have to trust the word of the Lord. He knows what's best. That's what he says. I can't change it. Let's see. I have a question for you. I don't know if you want to go into this. I'm going to ask a really fast question. That's fine. Um, what, are, what, what are the verses that you would use that opens your eyes to um, the thing I've heard this more and more and it's really beginning to uh, me hear it from guys that I really respect uh, about the if the if you get divorced for no re, for the reasons that aren't acceptable by God if one mate goes and remarries that gives the other yeah, the right to remarry Matthew five thirty two that's the past that's the issue that I dealt with with that friend for a long time and this is the passage you kept beating me over the head with <laughs> and it's the one it's exactly the case and uh, you know often we don't even carefully look at it. But if we look at it carefully, man, that's exactly what you said. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity. Now think about what that's saying. You know, I divorce Sandra except for the reason of unchastity. In other words, I don't divorce her because she's unfaithful to me. I divorce her wrongly. 
Whoever divorces his wife, except for the reason of chastity, makes her commit adultery. Now, how would my divorcing Sandra wrongfully make her commit adultery? Well, I'm going to put her in a position where she's going to be vulnerable to remarriage. And probably will do that. And when she does that, I'm partially responsible for the adultery she commits as the innocent put-away person who remarries. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So when I wrongfully put her away, she and the one who marries her commits adultery. Who was at fault? I was. Did I put her away because of her betrayal? No. I put her away for whatever stupid reason I wanted to put her away. I am the, I'm the criminal. But when I unjustly divorce her, and she marries, she's committing adultery, and so is the person who marries her, and I am partly at fault. That's the passage. I think that one's ungetoverable. I couldn't get over it. I kept trying to do all kinds of stuff. But this passage says... <laughs> You divorce your wife unlawfully, you make her commit adultery, and whoever marries her commits adultery. You know, there's no there's no way around that that I have ever been able to find. The one who is put away, who remarries, commits adultery. I don't know any exception to that. So if I unlawfully divorce Sandra and she remarries, she's committing adultery. It's my fault. <laughs> But she's committing adultery. Was that yes. the whole question? Or did I misunderstand it? Do you, is that, does that answer the question? Yeah. Does that make you eligible to remarry? Was that? Yeah, does that that's I think that was part of what I heard him ask. Does it make me it's eligible second, to remarry? Yeah, it's the second once, step. Once she, she, once she, she gets remarries. married, does that give you the step to remarry? Because she now she is committing adultery. adultery. See, the whole argument is that, in, like, <clears throat> In God's eyes, they're still married. We talked about what Which God... Which is not together. true. Yeah, exactly. I, I agree. But what, but what God... Because he had the man asunder, da-da-da-da. In God's eyes, they're still married. So that's really... That's really... She's being unfair. I think the first part of that verse answers that question. Yeah. Well, any other verse answers that question. Whoever divorces... What, Matthew 10. Or Mark 10. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Now, if the question is the one who did the divorcing and they remarry, Mark 10 says they commit adultery. He's saying if you wait then until she marries, now she's committing adultery, therefore you're free to remarry. The Bible does, where, where does the Bible say that I'm free to remarry unless I divorced her for fornication? And Matthew 5 specifically right. talks about divorcing her for another reason. For the cause, and that's what I said. The first yeah. part of that verse would answer. I would, I say that would answer that. Yeah. W well, it doesn't really deal with the remarriage of, of the one who does the divorcing, but Mark ten does. Luke sixteen does. If you divorce and remarry, you're committing adultery. Usually, it's the idea of this guy unjustly puts you away, then he goes out and remarries. Now, doesn't that free you? Now, can't you mentally put him away? Usually they'll say, really they were still married in God's eyes because this unlawful divorce never made them unmarried in God's eyes, so they're still a marriage, and therefore when he goes out and remarries, now she can mentally put him away, and she ends the marriage, and then she can remarry. That's the way I've usually heard that described, and this passage says, no, he makes her commit adultery. Yeah, I mean, I've heard it four or five different ways um, from one person. But <laughs> um, there are a lot of people yeah. who are wrong on that. A lot of people, but but they don't have a biblical leg to stand on, as far as I've ever been able to see. The whole idea of they're still married in God's eyes—that's not Bible language. Bible uses the term married and divorce for what man does, not for what God approves. Think about it, whoever. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. The Bible uses divorce and marry for what we do. God sees we're divorced. God sees we're remain. sees the same thing we do. Now, are they still bound by God? Yes. Are they still married? No. They're not married. Two people who are divorced are not married. 
1 Corinthians 7. Let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Uh, God, see, they're unmarried. They're not properly unmarried, but they're unmarried. They're, they're as unmarried in God's eyes as they are in ours. That's part of the problem. <laughs> so that, you know, we come up with all this stuff that's not in the Bible. I used to argue the same position. You know, and I just couldn't defend it biblically. And I recognized, you know, I keep arguing against what Kevin keeps showing me from the Bible. I can't do that. In Luke 16, 18 is also relevant. It's more of a summary. Uh, but Luke 16, 18, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. There is no exception ever given to the one who is put away. The only exception is given to the one who divorces for sexual immorality. If you didn't, if you did not do, if you did not end the marriage for sexual immorality, you do not have the right to remarry. Biblically, that's all I can see. And that's, you know, it's so easy just to deal with the Bible. Is so complicated to deal with all of the rationalization. Whoa. It gets to be really a mess listening to all that stuff. Just go back to the Bible. It's what it says what it says. So you said if you did not end the marriage for cause of adultery. So if you're not the person, if there was an adult, adultery in the marriage, but you are not the adulterous one, and you didn't... I mean, does the innocent party have to be the one that ends the marriage? I think so. You think so? Yeah, I think so. So if a, a, a man commits adultery and leaves his wife, and he initiates it, and she's trying to hold everything together, yeah, I do. she's not free to marry another? I think she has to divorce him. She now, exactly what that involves, I do not know. I'm not sure that means she has to file first. I'm not sure what it means. <coughs> but let me give you a clearer illustration that it removes the ambiguity of trying to figure out who's divorcing whom. Sometimes that's a little complicated because it's a mutual thing. But what about this? Let's say um, I, I divorce Sandra. And the fact is, I was running around on her. She didn't even know it until after the divorce was final. And then she finds out, <laughs> pretty obvious why I wanted a divorce, after the fact, when she realizes, oh, but she didn't even know it when I divorced her. Now, she couldn't possibly have divorced me for fornication. She didn't even know about it. That's a really clear-cut case. There's a case where I, as an adulterer, put her away. She's innocent, absolutely. But it's Matthew 5. I didn't put her away for her infidelity. Therefore, I make her commit adultery. The only exception is given to the one who does the putting away. I do, I cannot answer all the questions as to what makes somebody in the category of the one who puts away. When somebody starts coming up with a bunch of scenarios about, well, this one paid, but this one signed, but this one did this, and this one did that. I, wow, I don't know. I really don't. Uh, but I would think you'd got to have to at least put yourself in some way in an active position in seeking the divorce. You've got to do something. The clearest thing, it seems to me, is that you're the one that files, and you're the one that pursues it, and you're the one who gets it. But in our country, I realize that there's some varying shades of that, and the Lord will have to deal with that, I don't know. But certainly in the case I suggested, there's an adulterer putting away an innocent person where clearly she could not remarry. She didn't even know about the adultery until after the divorce was final. Those are not pleasant things. Who wants to hear that? You know, I don't know any other way to deal with the scriptures. Good, good questions. Other questions, comments? Have you ever heard anybody use... Uh, Matthew, to say that it's only the husband that can put away and not the wife? Yes, I have. I know. Some people always say that. What do you think about that? Well, here's what I think. I don't think it's right because there are a number of passages that 
parallel the action of the man and woman in this whole thing. We just read one of them in Mark 10, verse 11 and 12. 1 Corinthians 7 does that almost a tedious repetition all the way down through that passage. It goes both ways, both ways, both ways, both ways. And the rules are the same, always, both ways. So I think that's enough evidence to indicate that even though there are some passages that don't use Mark 10's language, like Luke 16, it just used the man and woman, still God intends for marriage law to apply equally to both. Now, I don't know that that's going to satisfy somebody who doesn't agree with me. I can, I think I could make their argument, and I think I could say, but you can't find me a passage that specifically says the woman can put away for fornication and remarry. Yeah, it's true. What I believe is that seeing that constant pattern it makes me believe that's the pattern God intends for us to use. We often in the Bible use male language to refer to both. And I think that's the more I think that's the more likely thing that the Lord is saying. Even though I can't come up with the verse that gives an exception to the woman putting away the man. So I probably won't convince somebody who's convinced the other way. I still think the the better position, a stronger position, is to see this as being non-gender specific. But yeah, I know some people who believe that mm-hmm. firmly. Yes. And then you've got the added layer in the old law of the whole polygamy thing going on, where you could have multiple wives. So it would be hard, in a sense, for the wife to put away her husband I mean, sort of. Yeah. In that sense. Yeah. 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 You didn't necessarily have that, but you did in Roman law have women putting away their wives, and Mark reflects that, I think, in Mark 10, by by going both ways. Putting away their husbands, right? What did I say? Wives. (laughs) Sorry. But Romans probably did that too. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Putting away whatever they needed to put away. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe sit up straight. (laughs) I lost what I was saying, yes. Fornication is an exception, but it's not something that's required. If if your spouse does commit fornication, you're not required to divorce them. Yes, and furthermore, I'm glad you said that. Let me say this, and I'll come back to that. Sometimes people say fornication breaks the marriage bond. That is not true. Divorce or fornication breaks the marriage bond. We are not required to put away our mate for fornication. That is an exception that's allowed. It's not a requirement. So it's not that I have to put away my mate for fornication by any means. Jesus gives that as an exception, saying that the one who does that and remarries is not committing adultery. That's all he's doing, saying they don't commit adultery when they do that and and remarry. Um, There may be some situations in which I would encourage that, there's a lot of situations in which I discourage that. I mean, obviously, there are some men who, for example, are just not content with one woman, and they're going to go from woman to woman to woman. I've known some situations like that, and I have encouraged women to put away their husbands in that situation. But there are other situations where I think reconciling and, and dealing with that may be the better option. Uh, certainly, I don't think there's a biblical requirement, and I, I think we must be careful that we say what the Bible says. Fornication doesn't break the marriage bond. Divorce from fornication is what releases the divorcer from that bond. Good discussion. Other comments, questions, thoughts? It's kind of one of these classes where we can do this kind of thing, so I appreciate it. Discussion is so practical and relevant. Unfortunately. All right. Uh, How about 13 to 16, back in March? And they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. So when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. 
And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. Well, <laughs> the disciples are an interesting group, and we're going to see that in the rest of this chapter. We see Jesus' whole philosophies being different than the disciples and probably than ours. He pretty much repels the ones the disciples would have received, and he receives the ones the disciples tried to turn away. And in this case, who is coming to Jesus? Children. And the parents were bringing him so he might touch the children. I'm assuming we're thinking about small children here, not, you know, teenagers or something. But uh, how did the, what do the disciples do? Why? Bothering. Yeah. You know, even how little kids are. They cry at inappropriate times. They dirty their diapers. They're just, you know, gee, they don't want Jesus to be bothered. You know, Jesus isn't doing important things. Get these children away. You know, they're not important. They don't have anything to contribute. What does Jesus think? He's indignant. <laughs> With the disciples. He rebukes the rebukes. <laughs> and he says, permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Jesus loves the innocent, the helpless, the needy, the vulnerable. He loves those who can give nothing to him. Who need everything. Jesus was the consummate servant. I think this is a great passage for us. I mean, how do you feel about little kids? You know, what do you think when there's little kids in the worship service and they start crying? They won't shut up. And their idiotic parents won't take them out. You know, and they're just annoying. You know, and they're whiny or they're this or they're that. Come over to your house. They get into everything. They'll mess everything up. You know, they try to eat, you know, they're going to make a mess all over everything because they can't handle their food. You know, what do you think about little children? You know, I think it's a test for us sometimes to have the attitude Jesus had for them. I mean, you just really have to appreciate Jesus. He grew up in heaven, you know, he didn't grow up, but you know, he was always in heaven. <laughs> Can you imagine the perfection of heaven? You know, just the, everything he had, and he comes down here. When he's had everything perfect, and, and he is, he loves these little children. He's got a mission to perform that's a universal, global, impacting mission. You know, he's got a cross to carry. He's going to be crucified in a few months. He knows all about this. He's going back ultimately to his glory. And he's got time to touch the little children. Wow. And we think we're too important for any menial task. And you know, one thing that has struck me more and more as I've gotten older, I wish it had struck me more when I was younger. You know, you get to be 50 and wow, <laughs> these little kids have grown up. And I've seen how important it is to love and care for the little children all the way along. You know, I can see why it was a blessing when I did give attention to a five-year-old who's now a ten-year-old or a fifteen-year-old or whatever. You know, and I love having lived in the same area for much of the last nearly thirty years. Because, you know, what a blessing that, you know, there's several people that, you know, I knew their parents before they got married, you know, and all that. You know, and you kind of been with them. And sometimes it gives you some opportunities. A little kid who knew you always loved them, when they grow up old enough that they need help, that may be an easy person for them to turn to. And I think of all the neglected opportunities and all the times when I didn't want to be bothered and I didn't give attention. Because after all, you know, there's more important things to do. I just really, Jesus, what Jesus does is very convicting. Comments and questions. 
don't know for me, it's not necessarily the children, but the people that I see is a little bit than myself that I don't want to reach out to. Um, and, you know, someone that I think they can't give me anything, that I can gain nothing from, that makes me feel, um, you know, what good will it do? I guess we all need to have this attitude of loving all, whether they can give us something or not. Amen. That's challenging. Yeah. Kind of tests why we're doing it. And you love the people who aren't very lovable and, you know, aren't very capable of giving you anything or making you feel better or whatever. It's easy to love the lovable people. You know, because they'll probably give you more than you give them. What about loving those who can't give you anything? Can't do anything. They're giving you the best thing. They're giving you exactly what you need. They're giving you an opportunity to, to love someone who isn't lovable. I mean, that's what we're called to do. That's what And Jesus without did. those unlovable people, we can't do what we're supposed to do. And you know, it's it's weird how some of that works. I mean, in my life, you know, <laughs> there are some particularly notable times that I remember really trying to care about and give attention to some people that have been really difficult to do that toward, who have ended up actually being some people who have helped me more than nearly anyone else has, people I've grown more attached to. You really grow the most attached to the people who need you the most. So, you know, that that's it's weird how the Lord, sometimes he blesses you in ways you, you never anticipated. Um, but we just, we just seek to bless, and we just seek to serve. And the objects of our service ought to be those who need it. Uh, Jesus is so, he's so awesome. I mean, you know, you can never see him and not be convicted and exhorted by everything he did. Even the simple things like this. Other comments? Yeah, the question in verse 15 where it says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. It's a, a very strongly worded statement which makes me want to understand for sure what it means to receive the kingdom of God as a little child. And I'm not sure I know. Maybe the idea is the idea of not having anything to bring. Receiving it by grace without um, without worth and merit and things like that. Humbly. Perhaps even the idea of humbly. We see that in Matthew 18. <clears throat> Certainly, you could see the idea of purity as well in a little child. So there's several ideas that would fit that. So I'm not absolutely sure, but maybe the idea of receiving it without, you know, any merit, receiving it totally by grace, as a child who can contribute nothing would do, might be the best explanation. I don't know. a big lesson. Ah, yes. I mean, that that verse is scary. Well, it's Jesus telling Nicodemus you must be born again, which ultimately says nothing you've done so far counts. You've got to start all over. That is humble. We want to come into the kingdom, you know, full of glory and, you know, recognition. And wisdom. Yeah, yeah kingdom needs me. Yes, yes. They'll be glad to have somebody like me. <laughs> exactly. Might even get a spot at the right hand. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Maybe the You're anticipating here now. Yeah. That's right. This is a great chapter on values, and we'll see that because Jesus receives the children here. <clears throat> but essentially, he'll repel the rich young ruler that was so lovable. And he'll repel, to a great extent, James and John's request. And then, of all people, he'll receive this blind beggar that was bellering out and that everybody was trying to shush up. So Jesus receiving who was a 
Beller and Blind Beggar and Little Children at the expense of James and John and a rich, young, lovable ruler. You know, wow. Jesus is just, he, he goes after the very opposite of what we were. It's a great, great chapter for that. <laughs> I still have to look that up on Google. <laughs> well, you get the idea. I don't know if that's really a word, but that's a Hoosier word anyway. I grew up with it. Bellowing. Yeah, Bellowing. Yeah, I guess Bellowing? I don't know. But, but we always heard Beller. Yeah, that's, that's Hoosier. <laughs> so Bellowing sounds kind of weird. So it's kind of like smoke going up, you know. Yeah, I know. <laughs> All right, well, good discussion, and I appreciate everybody's uh, good involvement in that. Thank you. And, uh, you know, I am, I changed my plans and schedules, so I am going to be here next Tuesday. Uh, we'll start in verse 17. And then I'll skip a week.